Well, this is the third of uh, four major topics that uh, Hume's philosophy brought to the attention of Thomas Reed and, and his colleagues. There's first the famous ideal theory, the notion being, the theory being, that we do not have direct access to the external world, but only access to our mental representations of it, the theory of impressions. This then gives rise to Hume's conclusion that any concept we have of causality finally has to be grounded in that same ideal theory or impressionistic theory, such that we do not have any direct knowledge of causes whatever, and therefore the concept of causation has to be found somewhere inside us. It turns out to be a habit of the mind. And then if you continue in that line of reasoning and raise the perennial question of how a constantly changing body, something that alters its nature over a course of a lifetime, nonetheless grounds something called personal identity, you again have to if you're a Humean, take access to a version of the ideal or impressionistic theory to account for personal identity, and that's the topic for today. Well, consider photographs of yourselves taken, let's say, when you were three or four or five years old. Now, unless uh, you've got some intermediary photographs, there'd be very little relationship between anything that identifies you today and those photographs. In fact, uh, there are even studies done where as you use the photographs of, of children to match them to parents, that match is awful early on. It gets a little bit better later on and then it gets worse much later on. So if you use the usual physical and even psychological attributes the discontinuities in the various phases of life are quite striking. Nonetheless, everyone understands himself and herself to be the person who went to bed last night and got up this morning and got to Oxford in time for Michaelmas term and got here in time for Hume on personal identity. And that's, that's a problem. How does that happen? Does it happen? Now, this is an issue in philosophy that actually has, uh, has whiskers. And we can trace it back to the ship of Theseus. I'm sure some of you have been rehearsed in this before. Now, who was Theseus? He's the one who has to kill the Minotaur. He's got to get his way down into the labyrinth where the Minotaur is found. If he succeeds in killing the beast, he then has to get himself up out of the labyrinth he does this because the king's daughter, against the wishes of her father, uh, gives him a golden thread that he's to lay down as he works his way to the bottom of the labyrinth. That's Ariadne. Uh, she gives him the golden string that, uh, that finally allows him to get himself out. He pledges himself to her. They plan to meet and he will take her back to his country, leaving from the island of Naxos, giving rise to the famous opera Ariadne of Naxos. Of course, he abandons her, being the heroic cad that he is, etc., etc. By the way, that golden string is going to show up in Plato, um, and uh, 
uh, and Socrates knows what he's talking about and his audience knows what he's talking about when in Republic the point is made that in so many respects we are like puppets on a string we, we are under the control of the gods but there is one golden thread that we can pull back on and that he says is the golden string of reason so this is a re recurring to the the Theseus uh, story, the Theseus myth. Well, as you might guess, the ever-argumentative Greek-speaking people learning about uh, this uh, Theseus business and knowing that there were annual celebrations of the triumph of Theseus, after all, what did the killing of the Minotaur achieve? No longer would Greek youth be sacrificed to that nasty king. So this was quite, this was the 4th of July, all wrapped up into one. And there were annual festivals in which the ship of Theseus was paraded from port to port. If you can parade a ship, I'm not sure you could do that. But if there are some things that are growing, that are mushrooming, I say if mushroom can be a verb, then I assume that ships can be par paraded. Well, what do the philosophically oriented Greek-speaking people have to say about this ship of Theseus. The thing is now very old. The wooden boards are rotten. Some of them have to be replaced. Well, this raises a very interesting question. Suppose you replace all the boards with new board, board by board. Does it stop being the ship of Theseus? Does it come back as the ship of Theseus? Suppose all the old rotten wood is put over there and you now constitute board by board a new ship and from that old stuff over there you constitute yet another ship which one is the ship of Theseus are both of them the, you get the picture and of course that picture can be translated into daily life there are cells in the body that will be replaced regularly when you're told not to eat or smoke or do this or that because you'll lose your sense of taste, the taste buds are, there are lots of good reasons not to do these things, but you're not going to lose your sense of taste that way. The taste buds are replaced quite regularly and all the cells in the body except for cortical neurons undergo periodic replacement. Even the cortical neurons change in their functional properties moment by moment. And yet you don't. And so that's the question. On what basis do we lay claim to a continuing personal identity? As you surely might guess, there were older, medievally grounded theories in which the essence of human nature is an indestructible soul. That is what has continuity over time. It survives anything that might happen to the body, etc., etc., etc. There are these species of essentialism having deep platonic roots. Uh, Neoplatonist philosophy, which was a cornerstone of, of Christian theology for the first uh, seven or eight centuries, um, all stood behind propositions of that sort. The Cambridge Platonists, uh, to whom Locke is replying in many respects, also subscribe to this notion of, a, of an enduring substance that constitutes the self. So there is this, I, I don't want to call it metaphysical baggage, but if you're in the 17th century, 
and you're already won over to mechanistic modes of explanation and you do have some confidence that the natural sciences are able to explain things better than anything else, then systematically you're going to go after some of these older notions one by one and attempt to treat them in a scientific way. Remember the subtitle of Hume's treatise. The whole point of the treatise is to absorb the traditional problems of mind, of human nature, into a scientific framework. And this is going to require absorbing this allegedly indestructible substance type essential feature of our nature into a scientific framework. And for Hume that means the impressionistic uh, ideal theory framework. Now, Locke had taken uh, a swing at this problem famously. In fact, I, I do think it's fair to say that Locke brought the problem to the fore philosophically. And, uh, and I, I want to give you a little background on, on what Locke had to do first. First, he had to make clear that there's a, there's a species of essentialist thinking that is defensible, but another species that, that isn't. <coughs> Excuse me. And in this he's going to make a distinction between the real essence and the nominal essence of something. Now the real essence of something, this is the age of Newton now, the real essence of something is a corpuscular uh, uh, something inaccessible at the level of the senses. Today we would say that the real essence of what we're pleased to call the material world is subatomic. We do not have access to the real essence of anything. Now once things get to a macro level, like spectacles, well, are these spectacles? Well, suppose there were a breeze blowing in the room and I wanted to make sure that, that these uh, scanty notes didn't blow off the desk and I did that. Well, we could say, well, this is a paperweight now. Just as lecture notes become a fan or a toy airplane or confetti for a parade. That is to say, the essence of something in the sense that we can understand its essence, is inextricably bound up with our practices. It's what we, it's how we name things and what we do with things. And that is a derived essence and it is derived from experience and convention. Instances of nominal essence. A prince. A cobbler. And famously in Locke's essay he gives us the example of the prince and the cobbler who go to sleep at night and in the course of the evening the contents of the consciousness of the prince are moved into the mind of the cobbler and vice versa. And what does Locke say? He says, I grant you that on arising the next day each is the same man but not the same person. Now each is the same man in that the ultimate constituents of each haven't changed. You might want to say in a manner of speaking that the real material essence of each has not undergone any change. But 
as the contents of consciousness have changed, it's the contents of consciousness that determine who each of them is. And so oddly, on arising the next day, the cobbler, <coughs> the cobbler will expect you to bow uh, graciously and address him as your lordship, etc., etc. And uh, the prince will be quite put out when you ask if he can mend these uh, shoes of yours, you see. So Locke's theory of personal identity, what gives personal identity its continuity, is the continuity in consciousness. Put another way, it is the continuity of memories, the fact that we can knit our experiences together over time by way of conscious reflections or memories. Now Reed will have much to say about that thesis, which he believes is actually uh, a formal fallacy, and, and uh, provably so. Enter Hume. Now given, given Locke, why would we need Hume? Well, this gets a bit uh, truncated, and I, I hope to make it clear. With Locke, there is still a someone reflecting on the contents of consciousness. So you, you have not exhausted the phenomenon by way of an inventory of impressions. Because however rich the inventory of impressions, there still has to be an entity reflecting on it. And you might just as well call that the soul, if you like. You can call it the mind. You can call it what? You can call it the person. But that, of course, was the very thing you were setting out to explain in non-essentialist, non-substantialist terms. So enter Hume. Now, to be consistent with his overall philosophy, I'd be inclined to say his overall psychology, Hume has to be able to establish that if the idea of personal identity refers to anything, the idea we have of a continuing personal identity, well, its source has to be the source of all of our ideas. Now, what is the source of all of our ideas? You've only got two, don't you? You've got relations among ideas, and you have matters of fact, and matters of fact come by way of impressions of sense. So there must be some perceptual means by which we derive the idea of personal identity. Well, what would that be? Just what is it we perceive when we report a personal identity? If I say, I know who I am, what am I referring to? Am I referring to an object in space? Well, that would simply be a continuing, what shall I say, corporeal identity. In fact, we might even want to ask the question, what kind of identity is, is supposed when we talk about a continuing personal identity? Is it a continuing qualitative identity? Because if that's the claim, that's patently false. 
Qualitatively, you are not whatever it was you were at two weeks postpartum. For example, you're taller, right. notably hairier, far more given to a rich and various diet without lethal consequences, etc., etc. And when you read, your lips don't move. So there are many changes that have taken place between the cradle and the seminar room. So qualitative identity is ruled out. Well, what about numerical identity? Now, it is the case that no other material object has occupied the space that you occupied from beginning to now at the same time that you've occupied. Does that establish a continuing personal identity? No. That establishes the continuing identity of a physical object. So although it's true, it's only tritely true, that no other object is occupying the same space at the same time as a given object. And that applies to whether or not the object is one of us, or a pencil, or a desk, or anything else. So that argument from numerical identity to personal identity requires inferences that are, that are uh, impermissible or unintelligible. So what kind of identity is it then? Well, if it's not qualitative, and if it's not qualitative, and if it's not numerical, is it remotely possible that in fact we do not have an idea of personal identity. We, something else is going on and we happen to talk about it in, in terms of personal identity. Now Hume is satisfied at first, and by the way at the end of lecture I'm going to read you a passage from, from Hume's appendix to the treatise in which he expresses certain concerns about what the treatise set out to establish and did establish. Center stage is given to the issue of personal identity and uh, if you haven't read the appendix you'll see how daunting the problem is and how unsatisfied Hume is with what he has come up with in an attempt to deal with it. And this, this is quite rare in Hume where he, he owns that in fact reflecting on the on the account that he has given, he ends up throwing his hands up in a kind of desperation. But I'll get to that uh, at, at, at the end of the lecture. That's, it's, it's very much to his credit, by the way. So, um, so what does Hume say in Book 1, Part 4, Section 6 of the treatise? There are some philosophers who imagine we are every moment intimately conscious of what we call our self. That we feel its existence and its continuance in existence. And a certain beyond the evidence of a demonstration both of its perfect identity and simplicity. Unluckily, all these positive assertions are contrary to that very experience which is pleaded for them. 
nor have we any idea of self after the manner it is here explained. For from what impression could this idea be derived? You see, that, that is always the opening gambit in Hume's analysis of a claim, of a, a claim about mental life, mental contents. From what impression is this idea drawn? From what set of impressions is it made? It must be on some impression that gives rise to every real idea. But self or person is not any one impression, but that to which our several impressions and ideas are supposed to have a reference. If any impression gives rise to the idea of self, that impression must continue invariably the same. You see, if you accept the impressionist theory and you claim that your personal identity is continuing, then that impression must be a continuing impression. This would be rare in the... Do what, what, would, what would something like a continuing impression be like? It would be like an afterimage having looked at an exceedingly bright object. Now even that's going to dim with, with time. The toothache that neither changes nor goes away? Is that the sense in which you have a continuing personal identity? Hume thinks not. If any impression gives rise to the idea of self, that impression must continue invariably the same though the whole, through the whole course of our lives, since self is supposed to exist after that manner. But there is no impression constant and invariable. But further, what must become of all of our particular perceptions on this hypothesis? All these are different and distinguishable and separable from each other and may be separately considered and may exist separately and have no need of anything to support their existence. For my part, and this is one of the most famous statements ever made on the question of personal identity, this can't be the first time in Oxford philosophy you've heard this line. And if it is, it surely isn't the last time you're going to hear it. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. When my perceptions are removed for any time, as by sound sleep, so long am I insensible of myself, and may truly be said not to exist. And were all my perceptions removed by death, and could I neither think, nor feel, nor see, nor love, nor hate, after the dissolution of my body, I should be entirely annihilated. Oh my goodness. It's almost forlorn, isn't it? And when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance and fear that I shall never live to trace their footprints with the magic hand of chance, then, fair creature of an hour, I stand upon the shore till love and fame to nothingness do sink. I mean, this is... Hume is a wonderful stylist, and this is the sort of thing where you, you're not quite sure whether to stand up and applaud or 
up the medication. The man actually thinks he ceases to exist when he goes to sleep. It must be absolutely startling to him when he awakens, Reed might say. Yes. Oh, Reed has a fear. But don't do Reed yet because I'll have absolutely nothing to say next week. Yes, Reed is going to have a field day starting with Locke and then, and then Hume. And I don't want you to think that the nature of Reed's argument is simply an argumentum ad hominem or some such. It's analytically rich, but the lead-in is always uh, somewhat playful. So, so, what then? He says that in order for me to have a continuing personal identity, it, it must rise to the level of an idea. It's got to be, remember when, when Hume uses the word perception, with some reservation you are allowed to substitute the word thought. The, the question is, what is it that occupies your conscious mental life? If you claim to have a continuing personal identity, this is something that that you think to be the case. You think it to be the case. To think it to be the case is to have ideas about it. Every idea finally is reducible to or arises from or is based on sensations. Every simple idea arises from a simple sensation. Now complex ideas are just sensations or perceptions parlayed in such a way as to form more complex clusters. So, so if it is the case that you have the idea of something that continues without change, it must be based on impressions that continued without change. There are no such impressions. So what then? You don't actually have the idea of a continuing personal identity. You have what? You have some kind of continuity at the level of chains of perceptions. Now how should that be understood? Is there anything in a single impression that is unchanging? No. Is there anything in a strongly associational chain, chain of perceptions? Yes. Indeed, what we refer to as habits of the mind answer to perceptual combinations that have occurred so frequently, so unerringly, that given one, the mind is invariably moved to the other. And you can imagine this then being moved to yet another and another and another, so that given one, the mind actually recovers the entire chain. And it becomes automatic. It's so automatic that we conceive of it as a kind of necessity. That it was ever thus, do you see? I can give you illustrations of this. And you, you, you all know them. How many of you can ride a bicycle? All right. You're, you're not reflecting on each move. This is just something you, you'd say, well, no, I'm just riding a bicycle. And I'd say, well, do you think of pushing down with your right foot and then pushing. No, I don't think about it at all. Take a look at the skilled pianist, the virtuoso pianist, who does the 
final movement of the moonlight. Right? Now look, we, we used to have a view, I think you could trace this to Pavlov, there used to be quite mechanistic conceptions of how the nervous system worked. And it works, on this account, it works something like this. Let's take a skilled movement, a neurologically uh, sensitive movement where the patient with closed eyes has to get to the tip of the nose, that sort of thing. Now let's make that a richer kind of movement, something like that. All right. How's that supposed to work? Well, a ballistic response is emitted. Look here. Here's the keyboard. Now that has sensory consequences. And those sensory consequences come back up into the dorsal surface of the spinal cord and up to the central processor. <laughs> right. Whereupon some connection is made that now sends a signal down the motor pathways, down the pyramidal pathways and out the ventral surface, look here now, so that that finger comes up. And this one goes down. I shan't drag this out. If that's the way it works, then the Moonlight Sonata would probably take about a week to play, right? Because it just doesn't work that way. And in fact, a virtuoso pianist is not playing notes. A virtuoso pianist is playing a piece such that once the performance begins, it, it is read out as if they were a template for the entire performance. I, I, I'm not talking about what might be called a good piano player, you know. I'm talking about Emil Gallels, or, you know, the, the, the best of the best. So by, by overlearning, by habit, by relentless practice, what is built up is a veritable template that constitutes the composition as a whole. Now, if that can be done at the level of a musical composition, I think the Humean would argue that it certainly can be done at the level of what we were pleased to call personal identity. Namely, there are so many over-practiced, over-learned, richly associated connections at the level of perception that on awakening, all that is in place. And although we can't analyze it any more than we analyze our movements when we ride a bicycle, any more than the pianist is analyzing the, what his fingers are doing. Nonetheless, it is so firmly in place, so, so resistant to change, that we take it to be a necessary and abiding feature, inexplicable, in mechanistic terms, though in fact it is explicable in mechanistic terms. Is, is that clear but by way of illustration? You, you see what he's getting at. And, and the associations would have to be very strong. Now, suppose you were unable to form the associations. Can you think of any instance where one can't form such associations because one can't knit together events over time. A profound 
uh, short term, a profound retrograde, re retrograde amnesia. Now, there, there, there's a very famous case of that. Um, years ago, when we were doing the BBC public broadcasting series on the mind, uh, program one, um, which I served as a consultant and labeled the search for mind, included among the various uh, uh, episodes within that program, Clive Waring, who's a very famous interpreter of the Renaissance music of Lassus. Clive Waring had endured a bitemporal viral encephalitis which attacked the limbic system on both sides. Clive Waring could not retain anything happening more than 30 or 40 seconds ago. His hospital room, his bed, was filled with notes to himself in which he was trying to string together a sufficient number of experiences to create something that he could relate to personally. Here's an instance now that looks quasi-Humean at the evidentiary level. Here's someone incapable of forming the associations and for that person there isn't a continuing personal identity beyond a very narrow gap of time. He is who he is over that little period in which he can hold on to things. And if you ask him, is he the same one who had such and such for breakfast yesterday, it, he'll either dissimulate or more likely say, I have no recollection of what I had for breakfast yesterday. So it's, it, it's uh, what, what, what point do I want to make with these clinical and artistic illustrations? Look, we, we, we can be jovial about David Hume admitting that a lot of what he came up with was in the privacy of his study and when he goes out into the light of day he thinks like other people and so forth. Hume was an extremely urbane, sophisticated, well-traveled uh, fellow. Uh, his friendships included important figures in medicine. Uh, Edinburgh was rich in in, it, probably along with Vienna was one of the two best medical schools, medical faculties on earth. Cullen's nosology had been printed. Witt had done pioneering work on reflex mechanisms. Gregory, who was a relative of Reed's, was a professor of medicine there. Hume knew about the sorts of things you'd have to know about. And he didn't find anything in the sister sciences that refuted what he was standing behind. He doesn't take these matters up, but he's obviously addressing an audience which if, if, if it knew of uh, significant exceptions drawn from medicine or anything else would have, would have sounded the alarm. So there's that. Now, is David satisfied with what he has come up with? And I want to read you a passage from... Uh, from the appendix, and I, I would urge all of you to read, if you're not going to read the treatise, and you should, you certainly should read the appendix and then go back into the treatise to the places referred to in the appendix 
where Hume is concerned about whether or not he got it right. He says this in the appendix on this matter of personal identity. Quote, I find myself involved in such a labyrinth that I must confess I neither know how to correct my former opinions nor how to render them consistent. He then summarizes again his bundle of perception thesis as the sole means by which we could form the idea of personal identity. He even asks us to consider a creature lower than an oyster with no perception other than thirst. And he asks what sense of personal identity that kind of creature would have. But as, quote, we have no impression of self or substance as something simple and individual, we have therefore no idea of them. When I turn my reflection on myself, I never can perceive this self without some one or more perceptions. Nor can I ever perceive anything but the perceptions. Tis the composition of these, therefore, which forms the self. But philosophers begin to be reconciled to the principle that we have no idea of external substance distinct from the ideas of, the ideas of particular qualities. This must pave the way for a like principle with regard to the mind, that is, that we have no notion of it distinct from particular perceptions. He says, if you're already getting used to my impressionistic theory regarding everything else, well, that's a good reason to apply it now to the complexities of mental life also, so that those complexities might finally have to relate to particular perceptions and the associations among them. Continuing with the quote. But having thus loosened all of our particular perceptions, when I proceed to explain the principle of connection which binds them together and makes us attribute to them a real simplicity and identity, I am sensible that my account is very defective. Most philosophers seem inclined to think that personal identity arises from consciousness, and consciousness is nothing but a reflected thought or perception. The present philosophy, namely his own, therefore has so far a promising aspect, but all my hopes vanish when I come to explain the principles that unite our successive perceptions in our thought or consciousness. I cannot discover any theory which gives me satisfaction on this head. Now, I'm not going to drag you into the extraordinary realm of Kant's first critique, but those of you who've studied the first critique and see the work that has to be done by Kant's notion of apperception and the unity of consciousness as a necessary precondition for all cognition, well, this, this is what's going to supply the necessary ingredient, but that is not only non-impressionistic, not only a departure from the theory of ideas, but a necessary foundation if the Humean project itself is going to work. That's a, that's a separate 
and very, very complex issue, which I shan't go into here. But isn't this an interesting concluding statement? I cannot discover any theory which gives me satisfaction on this head. Now, if you're warming to the Reedian task, that's going to be a sentence you look at with particular interest. Hume can't find a theory to account for what every man, woman, and child not only takes for granted, but must take for granted in all of the ordinary affairs of life. Well, perhaps there isn't a theory that will account for it, or perhaps the one you've tied yourself to, which is the theory of ideas, is insufficient unto the task. At least we can say this much, that Hume's admissions at the end of the treatise in the appendix might have called upon him to revisit the ideal theory itself, but that revisitation would call into question the entire project of the treatise, and say what you will about, about theories, yes indeed, they are the creatures of theorists, but if they're doing a reasonably good job in an area that alternative accounts have not done very well with, you have some justification for holding on to them, short of the point of obsession. Finito.